we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian. I'm your host and executive director of the Center. And we have a very interesting show this week. I hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving. We're going to be talking with Roy Beck, who is the author of a new book. He's written several books, a couple of them on immigration. This is a particularly interesting book. The title is Back of the Hiring Line, A 200-Year History of Immigration Surges, Employer Bias, and the Depression of Black Wealth. So as you can tell from the subhead, the point of this book is to trace the nexus between immigration policy and black Americans and their history in the United States. And that's what I'm going to ask Roy about for the next half hour or so. Roy, thanks for joining us. Great. Thanks for having me here. Basically, why'd you write this book? What's the background of it? Why did you pick a book about the effect on black Americans in particular? I started writing this just before New Year's last year, after most of the year of the Black Lives Matter phenomenon and the unrest that accompanied that in uh, cities across the country. I was particularly struck by how long some of those protests lasted, the anger, the hostility, the, the nihilism that led to just black communities burning for days and days and days, sometimes weeks, you know. And, and uh, of course, I've seen this before. I was a reporter in the 60s. I, I was a very young reporter in the 60s. But I've seen that. And it reminded me, of course, of the L.A. riots that had happened in the early 90s. Police incident is usually the spark plug, or in the case of the 60s, it's an assassination. But my feeling has always been, my understanding from as a reporter for all those decades, that the tender that, that keeps these fires going, both literally and emotionally, it's hopelessness in those communities that were burning last year, just incredible incredible levels of unemployment. And I don't mean so much official unemployment, but just people that don't work, right. large percentage of people that don't work and certainly don't work in a long-term kind of way. And so that reminded me of a couple of chapters I had in my book by W.W. W. Norton 25 years ago. Which was titled? Which was titled The Case Against Immigration. And it's still available, right? Still available in, in used books. Okay. <laughs> like the new Case Against Immigration. Right. Yeah. The, uh, but I had written a couple of chapters about the history of how immigration affected African Americans. And I thought, it's time for me to really dig into this again. I'd been encouraged to do a lot more on it along the way. You know, I finally did it. And, and I think that I'd just a couple of months earlier seen that incredible release from the Census Bureau that said that the median black household wealth that's net wealth, was less than 6%, that of median white household wealth, was right. a year ago. Now, that's a little lower than it has been, but it's, it's always for some decades been less than 10%. And you have to say, 
what are all the reasons on that? And I was pretty sure of this, but as I did my study, my research to dig back into it, absolutely convinced that mass immigration, not just now, but you know, the last 40 years and the big spurges of mass immigration a hundred years ago are heavily behind this tremendous gap. So you're talking about long-term effects too. In other words, obviously we talk about immediate job effects or effects on wages, that kind of thing. We published some on, for instance, EEOC has done reports about blacks being fired and replaced by immigrants. And you're talking about that too in the book, but when you're talking about the accumulation of wealth from one generation to the next, even if it's just home equity, you're talking about a much longer term prospect. And one of the parts of the book I think is very important for uh, all Americans to dig into is why were so many African-Americans so far behind economically, job skills, let's just say, you know, 100 years ago, which was 50 years after the end of of slavery. And uh, when you trace through there, you see, well, actually, the first 10, 15 years after the end of slavery, there was a major improvement, as you could imagine, in, in the wages of blacks. But what were the big improvements were were the blacks that moved, the freed slaves that moved north. And then by 1880, the great wave of immigration started. And from 1880 to 1924, except for a very brief period in World War One, you had that massive immigration from Europe and the movement of freed slaves stopped out of the South. The promotions of African-Americans in the North stopped. There began to be a movement of African-Americans back to the plantations or near the plantations where they'd been enslaved. And basically, African-Americans could not get out of the South and could not get out of that semi-slavery, that the economic slavery they were in in the South until World War I when immigration was shut off. Well, and then right after World War I, mass immigration began again, but America, for all kinds of reasons, persuaded Congress to finally shut the Great Wave down to what ended up being around 200,000 a year for the next 40 years. So it wasn't that there was no immigration, it was just dialed back. Yeah, it was dialed back, and I call it moderated immigration, which suggests that it's both moderate, but it's also somebody's in control. right. And uh, what we know is is that, uh, and there's been a lot of academic research on this, by the time that mass immigration was stopped in, in 1924, you know, mass immigration was stopped, one wave of immigrants after another, just about every ethnic group in the country you can imagine, had arrived and was so much more successful. And many anti-black racists used that as say, well, it's, just, it's, it's proof that these uh, black descendants of slaves are just inferior to the immigrants who've come in. but the Because the immigrants came in with no, no more education, really. Right. Than the, than the a lot of them, anyway. Some may have, but generally. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. in, in general. Right. But they, were, they, they had all this industrial job skills and were becoming middle class. And here were these descendants of slaves, still just as poor as could be, and low-skilled, et cetera. Well, when you look back over that period, especially 45 years of the Great Wave, that was a period if it had not been for mass immigration, the descendants of slaves would have been doing those jobs because they were doing those, those 15 years, first 15 years. They were moving in. They were doing fine. So it's very important, I think, today to know that in 1924, 
half century after the end of slavery, how far behind most African Americans were in this country from other Americans because of immigration. Now, as the, the story is so great, and, and it's the hopeful story for us today, is that during the next 40 years until 1965, when Congress restarted mass immigration, during those 40 years, everybody was helped. Right. I mean, everybody was helped. The middle class was helped, but the poor were helped more than the middle class. That is, their incomes rose faster than the middle class. White poor rose tremendously, but the black poor, their economic situation was twice as fast as the white poor. Right. That was African-Americans. That was sort of a pent-up ability. You could say there was this ability that existed within the black poor that couldn't get through because of mass immigration. Once the labor of blacks was needed, that could break through. So they had a tremendous economic advancement. And you know, Mark, I think most people think of, especially the 40s and 50s and early 60s, as, well, those are, hard, those are bad times for African-Americans. Because we have all those pictures of the, the right. civil rights stuff, right? you know, in terms of the, the opposition to civil rights. But here's the thing. During those decades, despite Jim Crow laws still being in place in the South, and despite all kinds of discrimination throughout the North, civil rights and voting rights laws were not passed until 64 and 65. But during those two decades before then, there was this phenomenal economic progress for blacks. Which, in a sense, actually drove a lot of the civil rights activism. I mean, it has to have. Well, it's one of the themes that I have in the book is people who have studied that era and say, it's not that the civil rights would not have happened, could not have happened, those, those laws, but most people who studied it feel like it would have taken a lot longer. You go back to Booker T. Washington. Booker right. T. Washington That's says- That's kind of what I was going to say is that- No, no, no race whose labor is needed right. is long ostracized. And every time this country has needed black labor, there's been tremendous advancement of African-Americans economically and, and in terms of rights. So basically what you're saying is that, I mean, that anti-black animus is real. I mean, it's something we've had to deal with in our history all along, but that- in a sense, lower levels of immigration kind of make that animus toward blacks, the, un- the unwillingness to hire them, just a lot less viable and sustainable. And so it's a way of overcoming the animus by making the only people you can hire people maybe you don't want to hire. That's well said. And we just can't look at this history and avoid the fact that when given a choice, employers in general, <laughs> not every employer, right. but in general, employers prefer to hire people who are more like them. And virtually every immigrant that comes in, it looks more like the dominant population than do African-Americans. And frankly, it's, even now with Latin American and Asian immigrants. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's more and more study that shows that an awful lot of this is not intentional. It's not like there's a racial preference that can be very subconscious. I have to acknowledge that, that that exists, but it's not the same thing as 
somebody who just hates black people. That's you know that's a different kind. People like to look at that, right? And that you know the, maybe the, some of the old South and well, actually the old North too. But again, every population in this country, I would say, if their labor is not needed, they're not going to be treated very well. Right. And tight labor markets in any country will help be so beneficial to minority groups in those countries. And, and you know, of course, it's not just African-Americans, is right. it? It's, it's also any group of people that an employer thinks is harder to hire, harder to employ. If that's what they think, then you bring in a hungry, eager person that's come in from another country. I mean, that's the reason they're here. They're here to work. Right. <laughs> they wouldn't be showing up if they weren't eager to work. So one Congress after another, especially since 1965, has just made the decision to make it easy for employers not to hire less educated and less skilled African-Americans in particular. Right. Now, the, you lay out in the book your basic argument at the beginning, you know, kind of the overall argument, and then you go through chronologically and talk about some of the particular events. One thing that struck me early on in the book is that this didn't even just start with the Great Wave. Frederick Douglass wrote about immigrants basically uh, kind of edging blacks out of whole occupations that they had been prominent in, in what was that, 1840 or something like that? 1820s. Yeah. So it was- Because the first significant wave percentage-wise began right after 1820. Right. And so my point is, it's not even just an issue of Ellis Island and all of that. It's even before that, that this was at least in the North- with regard to free blacks, an issue. And this idea of um, violence and uh, tension that we saw this last year in particular, and not, it's not really stopped, this is a theme. It's a theme starting in 1820, where my book starts. And, and part of the reason I started in 1820 is because that's when- 200 years. That, that's when, well, it's 200 years. That's very neat. And it's also when the government began keeping records. Right, We know for sure records, the numbers. Right. But the studies in the past have suggested that immigration was only running maybe 6,000 a year from 1776 to 1820. Right. But then in the 1820s, it quickly got up to 25,000, 30,000. With the potato famine in the 40s is when it really exploded. And in the 30s and 40s just took off. During that period, that Frederick Douglass period in the 20s and 30s, you had these large numbers of immigrants pouring into places like New York and a lot of other cities too. And there was a pretty substantial free black population up there. And um, what happened was, first of all, way too loose of a labor market. Wages plummeted. And uh, there was not enough work to go around. So the immigrant groups, because they were very cohesive with their language, culture, et cetera, they began to form unions in order to tighten the labor market. I mean, that's that's the whole point of unions, isn't it? create a sort of an artificial tightening of the labor market. And they formed their unions around their ethnic groups. Right. And the last people they wanted were these freed slaves. So immediately the freed slaves got pushed out. Now in the North, especially in New York, the industrialists, they liked the black labor. That was not the issue back then. But especially the Irish unions, it was like, we'll go on strike if you hire any black workers. Right. So the black workers began to be their main way they got industrial work and work on the wars was to act as 
scabs, strike yeah, breakers. Strike breakers, And that, yeah. uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, almost any major black orator and writer and leader through the mid-20th century talked about how this put African-Americans at a huge problem with other workers because right. they were the ones that always kept the industries going when there was a strike because that was the only way they could work. The unions, first of all, wouldn't allow them to be members of the union. Right. But this is a situation of immigration, immigration mm-hmm. coming in. And it sort of started in the 20s, 1820s. 1820s, yeah. And it really continued into the 1960s. And there are parts of unionization even today where it's very, very difficult for African-Americans. Interesting. I had a black scholar read the book and approached me a couple of weeks ago, and he was he, he had a long litany of places where there's still problems in the unions, hmm. where preferring the immigrants over African-Americans. Right. Interesting. One of the uh, things that struck me was, again, this is before we think of the Ellis Island era, was the draft riots during the Civil War in New York. And they're called the draft riots. And I mean, I know a little bit of history, and it's always been discussed as a, you know, basically Irish rioting against the draft from the Civil War. But when you're writing about it, you're saying actually there's more to it than that, or at least there's stuff that led up to it. I mean, these were serious. They literally had to call Union Army units back from beating Lee at Gettysburg to come and suppress the riots in New York City. What was the immigration angle to that? I had never, I had never really thought of that before. The, uh, uh, you're right that they were atrocious riots, and uh, the descriptions that I have in the book are made a little bit PG-13. I mean, it was, they were just terrible. Sure. People running through the streets. They had younger people throwing rocks through windows to identify where African-Americans lived, and then the mobs would go in there and pull the residents out, and they'd beat them. They would, they would lynch them. They would tar them. They would burn them. You know, hundreds of people killed burned out of their homes, et cetera. Just tremendous anger and hostility. Well, part of it was that the immigrants, as they arrived, almost always identified with the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party of New York City was strongly pro-South, pro-Confederacy. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily anti-Union. They were a little more politically astute than that, but they were definitely anti-emancipation. Mm-hmm. So here are these immigrants who are fearful that if there's emancipation, there will be masses of free uh, slaves coming north mm-hmm. and competing with them. And they're already, as far as they're concerned, the free blacks that are there are the usurpers. Of course, right. it's exactly the opposite. Sure. But that's the way they saw it. Interesting. And so then they could see masses of, of free slaves coming up. And now Lincoln is requiring them to go risk their lives to emancipate the slaves. Right. And that's the thing that we generally know that was driving it. Now, understand it was a lottery. Not everybody was going to be drafted, but they were going to do a lottery. The immigrants thought that the Tammany Hall people would protect them and not allow the lottery to take place. But in the end, they were going to allow it. And that's what precipitated the riots. Now, as I show in the book, though, there'd been several years of just tremendous labor tension. Generally, it was a case of the immigrants beating up the African-American workers. I think it was a case where too dangerous for blacks to fight back in many right. ways. Just They could just try to protect themselves. But just a couple of months before these draft riots, this is what I was not aware of until working on the book, 
there had been an earlier situation in which things had gotten so out of hand, and the Republican leaders of the town, which would be the Protestant leaders, the Protestants, of course, were there all along. They'd only recently become Republicans. But the Protestant leadership in that town had long sided with black workers over the immigrant workers. Right. And the Democratic Party represented the immigrant workers. And that's kind of an interesting idea, too, yeah. isn't it? Is that mm -hmm. it's not like it really isn't a case that African-Americans have always been by every group mistreated at this, that the Protestant leadership, businesses and churches came to the aid in terms of trying to quell the riots and actually formed a society to raise money to help compensate some of the victims. Even more impressive, though, the auxiliary of this organization, the women. The ladies' and, auxiliary? What's that? The ladies' auxiliary? The ladies' auxiliary, yes. Right. The women and the, the, the daughters of these male leaders, these male Protestant leaders, they took it upon themselves to petition Lincoln to allow them to form a black brigade. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, there's already been efforts, obviously, in that direction. Massachusetts had already right. done that. Right. But this is one that I had Interesting. I wasn't aware of. So immediately after those riots, they are doing this in order to show that African Americans are fully American, fully Union, sure. et cetera. Interesting. They raised this brigade. They, and here's all these white women and daughters standing out at, uh, I forget which circle in New York City. And in a public ceremony that some people described as having 100,000 people present, hmm. this black brigade was presented the colors by these women. And then they marched down Broadway, armed. Interesting. Armed. <laughs> right. And as one person said, Marching down armed for war, where just a few months earlier they had been hunted down like rats. Right, right. Fascinating. Now, this brings up an interesting point, though, and you, you address it in the book. What are the descendants of these immigrants who are now third, fourth, fifth generation Americans? What are they to think about their ancestors' complicity in causing, I don't mean in the riot particularly, yeah. I mean, that's a particular issue, yeah. but I and mean, there's in a very few people. Broader phenomenon of marginalizing blacks as the country industrialized and they didn't get into that process at the beginning as they could have without immigration. This is, this is not a book to make everybody feel terrible about our history and terrible about their ancestors. Even in the, that riot, it was a very small percentage of the immigrants that did that. No, but I'm talking and, and, more no, generally about but, the but, phenomenon but, of but, mass but in, immigration. But I, I just starting at that point is that the problems that happened at every step that I describe in these stories through the book were not the immigrants' fault. It's not the immigrants' fault that there were too many of them and that the labor market got loosened so badly. It wasn't their fault that the employers chose them over African Americans. In other words, they were taking advantage of an opportunity that individually made sense to them and that legally, it was legal whenever they were doing it. I mean, I'm not talking about, and of course, illegal immigration wasn't much of a phenomenon during most of this history. So I have ancestors that came through Ellis Island. I, I don't feel bad about that. I, I, have, I feel no guilt at all about my Ellis Island ancestors. You know, I do have to say that, that part of our history is, is that we had governments that were indifferent. They're just indifferent to the effects 
of mass immigration, of loosening these labor markets, of the turmoil that it caused in the bottom of society in particular. Now, it's not that there weren't people that did care. I note that I think maybe two dozen times between 1880 and 1924, the House or the Senate voted to basically stop the great wave of immigration. But we had four presidents, Taft and Wilson and Grover Cleveland. Those are the three who vetoed They bills. vetoed it. So, Two of the three being Democrats. I mean, that was part of their calculation, too, I think. Yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah. And the indications are the, the majority, if not the vast majority, of the American people, including immigrants, they were electing people to Congress to slow that down because once the immigrants got here, the next wave of immigrants were hurting them just as they were hurting African Americans. And that's the point here is that I make this point all through the book. African Americans weren't the only ones being hurt. Right. It's just they were hurt disproportionately and in a special way. And every time that we had a reduction in mass immigration, everybody did better, including the immigrants. And, you know, one point along, I mean, the specific historical thing I wanted to bring up is that there's, you know, been a lot of focus and attention put on the great migration of black Southerners mm -hmm. to the North. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, there's Smithsonian has a whole section on that. And there's been, in other words, it is a, it's a theme that the teaching and presenting of history has tried to shine a light on. But that's, in a sense, a direct consequence of immigration policy. You slow down immigration, the great migration to the cities of the North is the inevitable consequence of that. And yet that's almost never really discussed in that context. The immigration aspect is, is not hidden, but it is really subtle. Even though its effect isn't subtle, it's talked it's, about subtly. It's talked about subtly, and I think it's a key part of history that that Americans need to understand. It's that, as many people said, the civil rights successes of the 60s could not have happened without the mass migration of African Americans into the West and the North. That, for all kinds of reasons, that had to happen. And that that mass migration could not have happened until the, the North and the West opened up because they needed black labor. So the reduction of immigration in 1924 made all that possible. Now, uh, Isabel Wilkerson has won a Pulitzer Prize and, and so <laughs> made herself rich on that amazing book, The, the Warmth of Other Suns, mm -hmm. where she interviewed, I think, over a thousand of these people who had, in the 90s, the people who'd been part of the Great Migration. And she's telling their stories. But in that book, there are a few places in which it's absolutely clear that the Great Migration was kicked off by the end of mass migration. So even in that book, which is, is, is I would say, accepted across the spectrum and is right. extremely well received in uh, the more liberal community of America, recognizes that. But it is kind of lost in there, you know, because there's so much there. And I think that's, that's one of the things I wanted to do with this book is, look, Mark, I'm, I am not a uh, trained historian. I'm a journalist, trained journalist. I did not do primary research other than a, some journalistic work that I've done along the way, but where I've gone to places. But what I did was, was, was to pull paragraphs, sentences, pages that are scattered in dozens and dozens of work by top-notch historians over the, well, some of the historians go back 
over a hundred years that it pulled from to pull all of that together into one narrative, which I, right. which I believe it's one of the things you do uh, as uh, uh, Frank Morris told me, says, actually, Roy, that is scholarship right. <laughs> taking from everybody else. I think for the reader, it's a chance to, to just read something that just continues a one narrative all the way through. And you see that it, I think that people who are not African-American can also see in this the story of their families too as well, because it's always part of it. Right. Uh, not done yet, but just to remind listeners, this is the book is Back of the Hiring Line by Roy Beck. It's available on Amazon in paperback, electronic, and is the audio audible version the uh, it is yet? out. It is up. So mm-hmm. you've got three different ways you can read it on paper, read it on bits, or listen to it. I wanted to ask: the argument you're making here seems to be on one that should resonate with people on the left. And why doesn't it? Well, the book's not been out long enough for, <laughs> it, for it to resonate. I'm really hoping that we can get a wider audience for this story. But it doesn't resonate on the left now, but it used to. Right. And that's one of the things you see through there. And, and uh, your Center for Immigration Studies have done some great primary research through the years to bring some of that out. I mean, you see the, the African-American newspapers around the country when they wrote back in, the, say, 1918 and 1924 and 1930s, when they wrote about immigration, they talked about immigration and the labor market the same way that the Center for Immigration Studies does. Exactly the same. Even A. Philip Randolph, the famous uh, and, and labor Philip leader. Randolph was a socialist. He was right. a socialist politician and, and union, union, leader union leader his yeah. whole life. Right. Marcus Garvey right. gave us incredible— He was an immigrant himself. Yes, and really radical uh, during certainly part of his life. Right. Gave a barn burner speech at one of the churches here in D.C. after World War One, and basically just saying, we're going to, all the gains that we had during World War One, we're going to lose if they don't uh, shut this immigration off permanently. Right, because uh, so, immigration had basically stopped yeah. during World so War why, I. So why, when it's so obvious to really... I, I have a sense almost all black leaders from the 1880s on until after the passage of the civil rights laws. Why, when almost every black leader saw and spoke about it so clearly, and most liberals saw it the same way, other than the communists, why has that changed? And I, you know, that's, that's, a, uh, that's another book. Right, yeah. Because I decided not to use this book to point fingers other than to say Congress in general. Because I didn't want people thinking in polarized ways. I wanted to try to just think about the logic, the practical realism of the themes of this book. But the fact is, is that there are many, many major political leaders and cultural leaders who set themselves up as being champions for African-Americans, whether they're black or white or something else, who routinely press for more and more mass immigration, which is clearly holding down the wages of everybody, especially who have less education and less skills, but also, which is 
driving a higher and higher percentage of African-Americans out of the labor market altogether. And what it always means is there's something else more important to them, right? Right, exactly. And, and, that's, is- and that's what has to be looked at. Uh, and it's not that nobody's been looking at it, but I, I hope that this causes some people to be shaken out of their indifference. People who, who sincerely care about the underclass of all races in this country and who in this last year have maybe been, have been sensitized to just how tough things are for the black underclass. And, and for people who, who care like that to, to look at this and go, you know, it makes no sense at all with all the problems that are there for our government to every year make it harder. And taking another million plus yeah. people from abroad. And basically just open the gates and anybody who can get here on a, on a visitor visa, the only way you ever have to leave now, right? is to kill somebody and, right. and and with uh malice I guess. Yeah, and even then, yeah, if you do it while you're drunk, you still don't get uh, right. deported. Yep. So we know there's this both an illegal and a legal immigration problem. Well, thank you for coming in, Roy. Um oh, thank I think you. this is an important book. Again, it's back of the hiring line. The subhead is a two hundred year history of immigration surges, employer bias and depression of black wealth. It's available now at Amazon in paperback, in Kindle, and in uh, audio format, which is the way I usually listen to my books. The author is Roy Beck, B-E-C-K, and when you write another book, uh, we'll have you in again. Thank you, Roy. (laughs) Thank you. Finally, I wanted to report on a bit of good news that one of our analysts, Todd Benzman, wrote about this week on our website, cis.org. And that is that the Biden administration is actually deporting by air some share of family unit, illegal immigrant families that are apprehended at the border. He was down in South Texas at the McAllen, Texas airport, where a lot of these flights come from. ICE runs them through chartered planes by getting the registration numbers of the planes, which are right there on the tails you can find out what the flight path of these planes are. And so what he estimated was that something like from August through October, something like 65,000 people, mostly women and kids, not just single men, were flown either back directly to Central America or down to Southern Mexico. And then the Mexican authorities bust them into Central America. Now, this is Still a relatively small share of all the illegal immigrants that have shown up at the border. In that period of time, August through October, there are more than half a million illegal alien apprehensions. So the number of people being returned is not the majority. It's, it's still a relatively small share. But that small share, that little bit of enforcement, relatively speaking, seems to be having an effect. That seems to be the explanation for the drop in apprehensions at the border over the past couple of months. In fact, from September to October, the number of border arrests dropped something like 30,000. And, uh, you know, it's still very high. The level is at levels we haven't seen even now in 20 years. But it does seem to be going down. And the reason is that the Biden administration is doing the only 
kinds of things it can, which is enforce immigration law, fly illegal immigrants back to where they came from, thereby making all the money they spent on smugglers go to waste. This is something the Biden administration doesn't want to talk about. It's actually pretty secretive about it. They did have some kind of public statement very early on that they were doing this, had no references to it since. Our analyst down there, authorities tried to keep him from filming any of the efforts. Uh, Nonetheless, he did get some footage and the video that uh, we put together is embedded in that blog post, which uh, by Todd Benzman, the title of it, if you want to look it up on our website, cis.org, is Don't Look Now, But ICE Is Deporting Some Central American Families by Air. What this shows is two things, I think. One is enforcement works. We've always known that, but this administration, at least some people in it, don't, you know, they seem to need to have learned that. But the other thing, of course, is that this is a sign of the schizophrenia within the administration. You know, everybody in the Biden administration is hostile to immigration enforcement. They want amnesty. They want increased immigration. It's not as though there's an ideological difference or split in the administration, but there is one over practical matters. In other words, the people actually in charge of the appointees doing the immigration work are mostly anti-borders crusaders. They're ideologically opposed to the borders of the United States, period. I mean, I'm not exaggerating there. But there are also people in the administration, political folks, who are worried about the consequences, worried essentially that they're boiling the frog too fast and that voters will react as the public opinion polls have been showing for a year now, they'll react negatively to this administration's anti-borders policies. And so that more pragmatic faction within the administration regarding immigration seems to be, uh, at least in this respect, getting the upper hand. And that's all to the good. We'll see, of course, if they stick to it. We'll see if the relatively modest amount of enforcement this administration has grudgingly started to do over the past couple of months continues to make a difference or whether the numbers will just start going up again. Uh, We saw something like that in the Obama administration when this unaccompanied minors flow and the flow of families from Central America really broke into the news and became numerically a real problem at the border in 2014. The administration, the Obama administration at the time, responded, frankly, more seriously, I think, than the Biden administration has. And the 2015 numbers for apprehensions were, in fact, down from 2014. The problem is that they started going up again in 2016 because the administration, the Obama administration at the time, was also conflicted between the desire to keep the borders open and the political necessity of not scaring voters because voters don't want what the administration wanted. So, you know, it's very possible we're going to see a similar phenomenon this time. But in the immediate case, the the sort of the facts that are before us, it looks like the modest amount of enforcement that ICE is being permitted by the Biden White House to do 
is bearing fruit, is showing results, and here's hoping it continues. This is Mark Krikorian for Parsing Immigration Policy. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Go to our website at cis.org. You can see our past episodes of the podcast as well, and I hope you tune in next week. Thank you.